to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We've been making our way through John's Gospel. And actually, would you guys stand with me this morning? Let's, let's read this text. If, you got, if you're open there, and I'll read it with you, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into it. John chapter 5, uh, verse 1. This is this. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there, in, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Beth- Bethesda, which has a five-roofed colonnades. In these lay multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and when I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. May you be seated. Sweet. Well, this is the third miracle in John's gospel. The first two signs we've talked a lot about, they were two signs that happened in the village of Cana, Cana of Galilee, the sign of the water being turned into wine. Uh, and then the second was the sign of the healing of the official son. And sandwiched in between those two stories were all of these Uh, accounts and stories regarding the the claims and the nature and the person of Jesus and who he claimed to be. And they clearly told us that Jesus was claiming his identity as the son of man, as the son of God, that he was claiming to be the Messiah. As he told the woman at the well in Samaria, I'm the source of living water. I'm life for your soul. And Jesus claimed, as we've seen, as we've gone through John's gospel, just so far, just in this early part, that he claimed for himself uh, nothing less than deity, that he was God. And he demanded nothing less from those who would come to him than their faith, than obedient faith. And so the first two miracles, when we look at them, they're kind of private in their nature. I'll just remind you of that. Remember, one's at a wedding. It's just like a few people know and the disciples, some servants. And then, then there was... You know, the story of, of that official son that was healed, and, and that was kind of quiet, and only a few people knew about that. And it's interesting that when Jesus did those miracles that John tells us about, that he kind of spoke, and he was kind of harsh. We saw that, that there was almost this demanding sort of dual nature to what he said. And I don't think it's any different here. So we come to John chapter 5, And John tells us about this miraculous sign that Jesus performed in public. It's not in Cana of Galilee anymore, but in Jerusalem. And on the Sabbath, no less. And now he begins to incite the opposition of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And it was kind of inevitable. We know that about the story of Jesus with the claims that he was making, with the things that he was saying, with the things that he was doing, the signs that he performed. He's going to meet opposition sooner or later. And so in John chapter 5 and actually chapter 6, John shows us the the development of the opposition against Jesus, how that began to rise, and why it began 
to uh, rise and why these religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. And so what we read here is not simply the story of a miraculous sign, but John, in John's account, this is the beginning of the official opposition against Jesus. People coming against him. And the opposition centers around two stories, two miracles, two signs that Jesus performed. The first one is this one we're going to look at this morning. The, the healing of this man who was an invalid for 38 years. The second one is the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee. And so it's interesting because here again, the scene kind of moves. We've got one that happens in the city. We've got one that happens, a story that happens in the countryside. And from John's perspective, the opposition started at this account that we just read and the meanings and the things that are in this story. All started at the pools of Bethesda. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem with us, you've been to the pools of Bethesda. It's an interesting place. In 19, it, sorry, in 1888, there's, this, there's been this ancient church in the northeast or northwest corner of Jerusalem for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. It's called St. Anne's. And in 1888, they decided that they would renovate this church, this chapel. And so the, those who were doing the renovations went in there and they began to clean the walls of these old chapels because you never know what you're going to discover under the layers of paint. And as they began to take the whitewash off the walls, they uncovered a fresco that was behind uh, the whitewash. It was a uh, faded but the picture was clear, and the picture was this. It was a picture of an angel standing in, in the waters and stirring the waters and the sick and the lame being around this pool. And so it's interesting because the pools of Bethesda had never been discovered. Bethesda, sorry, had never been discovered. And so they began to dig in that area, and they uncovered that that was the actual site of this spot that we're reading about here this morning. And there was uh, two, two pools. Now, the story is this, and some Bible translations will give you this, is that they believe that what would happen is that from time to time, an angel would come into these pools, he'd stir the water, and then how it would work is this, is that whoever got into the water first would be healed. And so this was a place where the sick, the invalids, the, the paralyzed, the blind would come, people that had physical ailments, and they would stay there at the pools of Bethesda, and they would hope for the stirring of the waters, and then there would be a scrabble to get into the waters whenever that happened. Now, it's ancient times. It's probably like a spring bubbling from the water. I don't know about the whole story of an angel coming down and stirring the water, but that's what they believed. And this is where this miracle took place. And there were two pools surrounded on each side with a, a portico. And then it was divided. The two pools were divided in the middle with a portico across it. Calvin, can you flash that up there? I just snagged a picture off online so you get a little bit of a sense of what that looked like. But there they are, two pools, four-sided, with a walkway across. And if you can imagine, that place would be filled with the sick, with the lame, with the blind. Yes, Calvin? Well, I don't know about your memory, but uh, <laughs> that's, how, that's how it worked. Yeah, it was 11 years ago. So I don't know what you're picturing in your head, but that's how it worked. <laughs> Someone go kick that guy back there. Just kidding. Sort of. No. <laughs> so hundreds of people would gather there, and... And they were, you know, they weren't there to see a doctor. They weren't there to see a nurse. Uh, they weren't there, you know, seeking some sort of medical treatment. Treatment. No, what they were hoping for was this, that the water would begin to bubble and that they could make the scramble and be the first one into the waters and have a healing for whatever physically ailed them. And, and so that's how it rolled. And when you think about it, it's like a sad place. It's like kind of sad to think, wow, this is where they all came. It's like there was no hospital to go to. This is where the sick went. And the only hope was be the first one in the water. 
Because only the first one's going to get healed. So you got to be the first one in the water. Now you think about that. How's that work for a blind person? They're not even going to see the water being stirred, let alone have the, the skill to navigate their way to the water's edge. Or pretty tough for a paralyzed person to be the first person to get into the water. And if the water did stir, imagine the mayhem that would just begin to ensue in this area with hundreds of sick people there. And when you think about it, that means this, that this was a really religious place. It like symbolized the heart of what religion is really about. And we're saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is a gift. It's not by works so that no one can boast. But this was a religious place. This was a place that said, you got to be the first. You got to be the best. If you want to be healed, you better try harder. You better work harder. You better do more. You better be the first one in the water. It's, it's a religious place. Fight your way to the top. And so this is the scene, and this is where Jesus comes. And so we read again in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So, John tells us one day, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes to these poor folks. He'd come to Jerusalem for a feast. John doesn't tell us which of the feasts it was, what time of year it was, or anything like that. He just Information is he's come for the feast. And it's interesting that John tells us that Jesus came through the sheep gate. Now that's interesting because John, for John it's important that Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus comes through the gate into the city, the gate through which all of, all of the sacrificial lambs that were killed on the temp at the temple. That's the gate Jesus enters. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he comes through the sheep gate. And there at the pool of Bethesda was, was one man who had been there longer than Jesus had been alive on earth. 38 years. That's a long time to be called an invalid. That's a long time to be suffering from such a condition. I mean... He would have already been suffering for at least five years when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This guy's been suffering for a long time. And it's interesting because 38 is a number that kind of correlates with the story of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. Uh, Calvin's going to flash this up on the screen. It's Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14. I'll read it to you. It says this. This is, this is Moses recounting the wilderness wanderings. He says this, And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. 38 years. This man was an invalid for 38 years. 38 years was an important time with which the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. And there's an overtone that is familiar here that John wants us to catch. That's why 38 matters. Probably fair to say that this individual is symbolic of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel at the time. And 38 years in my mind, like, I wish I was only 38 years old. But I'm a little older than that now. 38 years of sickness is like, boy, that, that tells you that that's a situation that probably in your mind has no ability to change. If you've been experiencing that, that's like a long time. You know, any hope for change is like, well, hope for healing is kind of in eternity, I think, when you've been suffering for something that long. And I think as you read this, you see that this man's resigned himself. He's resigned himself to his situation. He's resigned himself to his reality. It's not going to change. It was fate. And it's like accept reality and learn to deal with it. Learn to live with it. But that day, 
Jesus found this one particular man. There were hundreds of people there. Hundreds of people with physical ailments and, and they, were, they were there and Jesus picked out this one man in the midst of this entire crowd, which in and of itself is kind of amazing when you think about it. You think that Jesus would show up and he'd just be like cruising around like Benny Hinn, waving a white hanky and touching people and everybody's healed. But that's not what Jesus did. Very interesting. You know, there's times when we read in the scripture that everyone was healed when he was present. There's other times like this where it's one individual in the midst of hundreds who are ill. And Jesus bypasses them. He leaves them in their state. He leaves them in their condition. And he comes and he deals with one man who suffered for 38 years. Now check out verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? 38 years, Jesus. You know, it's interesting. Jesus comes and he knows this man. He looks at him. He, he knows his condition. He knows his heart. He knows what he's thinking. He knows who the man is. He knew everything. And so Jesus starts where he often starts with people and he asks this question. He starts with a question. Do you want to be healed? Seems sort of silly to me. Like when you read that at first glance, that seems kind of, that's like, that's like in our house getting up and like Lisa saying to me or me saying to her, hey, would you like a cup of coffee? That's like a total no-brainer in our house, right? It's like, uh, yeah. In fact, I'm like expecting one or she's expecting one. It's like whoever's up first better make the coffee. Of course, no-brainer. Do you want to be healed? Uh, Yeah. I've been laying here for 38 years. But that's actually not what the man says. When Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? Look at what he says in verse 7. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, he seems to answer like this to me. Well, Jesus, it's kind of like this. I can't help my situation. I, I can't help that I'm lying here. Like, don't miss this, church. This man is evading what Jesus is asking him, and what he answers is availed, ambiguous. I can't. I can't. Or I won't. And it's interesting because when you read it and, and you pay attention to it, the man actually begins to blame the fact that no one can carry him to the water. He begins to, you know, when the water stirred, no one can carry me there. You know, he, he may have been lame, but what we're going to see about this man and what I want you to catch and what I think the Spirit of God wants us to catch as a church this morning is this, that this man had a paralyzed will. He wasn't just an invalid physically. He was one spiritually. And he says this, I can't, Jesus. In fact, it's someone else's fault. And sometimes, you know, when we, when we talk about people, when we talk about human will, human will is a very powerful thing. You know, sometimes... Sometimes we've said this. I, I've said this about people, or I've heard other people say it, ref, referring to someone, say, well, it's, it's like they've given up the will to live. Have you ever said that about someone? It's like, interesting. It's like you watch someone age, and you're, and you're like, wow, at some point, it's like they just decided, I'm, I'm done. I'm checking out. And they check out here, and they check out in their will, and then everything speeds up so much faster. Sometimes you, you get around individuals and, and they're young at heart, like Marguerite. That's a woman who's young at heart, 92 years old. Not meaning to point you out, Marguerite, but it's true. You're young at heart. We admire that about you. And it's amazing, right? You, you, you get around people that are young at heart and they, they live life. They enjoy life. And then there's people that seem to be old before their time. Where it's like, that person's an old soul and maybe they're like 25 and you're like, man, that guy seems like he's 
50 already. Because who would want to be 50? Just kidding. (laughs) The point is this. Human will is a very powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. And we live in a culture, we live in a time and culture, we live in a society that wants to turn everyone into a victim. Where we say this, I'm not responsible for what I am. It's my background. It's my upbringing. It's my parents. It's my situation. It's because of my circumstance. It's because of this or it's because of that. I I can't help what I am. I'm a victim. And, And we can become such victims of circumstance, such victims of situations that we have no will for change. Instead, we, we adopt the attitude that says, I can't help what I am in this situation, in this circumstance. Nobody will help me. And so when somebody actually comes along and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? When Jesus comes and says, do you want to be made whole? So, well, I can't. I can't help. I can't. I can't help this. It was my parents. It's my spouse. You know, it's my situation. It runs in my family. This is the way we are. And Jesus is asking this man, do you want to be healed? It's like, wouldn't you think the answer is yes? But I don't think the answer is yes like this man. He's a a picture of our culture. And it's interesting because it could this this reality, this truth can apply physically, but it can apply emotionally to you. It can apply to you spiritually. It can apply to the moral side of your life. You know, I think about emotions or anxieties that we can have. We all we all have fears. There can be things in our life that cause us anxiety, broken relationships different experiences we've gone through, but it's what we do with those things that matters as we bring them to Christ. And and the question for us this morning, church, is this. Do we have the will to say, in Jesus, I'm going to get over this. In Jesus, I'm going to work through this. It's It's not a quick get over it, but it's a decision to say, you know, I'm going to walk with Christ in the midst of this, and I'm going to trust him to lead me through this. He's good. He's got something he's seeking to accomplish in my life. In Jesus, I'm going to overcome this complex. In Jesus, I'm going to overcome my fear. In Jesus, I'm going to rise above the situation. In Jesus, I'm going to overcome in this circumstance that has emotionally handicapped me. I'm not going to spend 38 years as a victim. In Christ, I'm an overcomer. In Christ, I will get victory over this. Maybe it's an area of sin. I will get victory over this area of sin and temptation in Christ. Do you want to be healed? That's the question Christ brought. I think it's the question he brings to us this morning. You read, I'm like a biography guy. I love love biographies. Right now I'm reading reading a biography of John Newton. And John Newton's the man who wrote the, sto- the, the song Amazing Grace, right? And if you know the story of John Newton, I, I'm like stunned. As I read it, I'm like, holy smokes, this man was wicked. He was wicked. Wicked of wicked. A slave trader. Uh, just a wicked, wicked man. But Jesus changed his life. And there was hope. And he had the will to change when he met Jesus and he sang of God's amazing grace and God used him powerfully. You know, there was a a, a missionary who went to Africa in the 1800s, a woman named Mary Sleslor. And and she's actually buried in Nigeria. And when she was a child, she speaks of her fears and her anxieties as being so great that she could not cross the street by herself. 
She needed her mother or father to hold her hand just across the street. And we're not talking, we're talking in the days of buggies and horses. And she was terrified to cross the street. And she surrendered her life to Jesus. And, and she's a, a woman who by herself paddled in a canoe down rivers in West Africa preaching the gospels, the gospel amongst cannibals. It's like something changed. Christ healed something in her life. And Jesus makes this offer. Do you want to be healed? And it's not enough to say, you know, no one will help me. I can't help myself. And it's true. Nothing can change if you like, well, I think about this man, I think that he actually like come to love misery. Nothing can change if you come to love your misery. Jesus came to die to save us from sins. To save us from sin and the, you know, Sometimes you ever wonder this about ourselves? Like, it's like, well, then why do I still sin when I've given my life to Jesus? And I think really like deep down the answer is this because really we don't really want to be rid of our sin. It's like we want to have our cake and eat it too. Are you having trouble with temptation? Jesus says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be free from this? And we're all like, well, there's part of me that wants to be free and there's part of me that loves this thing. Do you want to be saved? You know, why do some people hear the message of the gospel year after year after year and they like don't respond to the message of Jesus? The reason is because part of them, yes, wants Jesus and the other part knows Man, if I bring Jesus into my life, I got to face up to some realities. I got to have a serious reality check. It's going to mean some change in my life. I'm gonna, things are going to be different. Jesus is going to put demands on me that I'm not sure I'm like willing to face. Now think about this man. He's been in this spot for 38 years. He survived. He survived. He's like carved out some sort of life. Even though the quality of it may not be like perfect, it may not be great. He's learned to beg. He's learned to create an income for himself. You know, I, I've heard of people in cities that, that can make a good living doing such things, right? We know that. And, and they could be pretty content with their situation. That's this man. He's like pretty content. You know, I, I, I've talked, with people who tell me that they're without a job and they're, they're looking for a job and like based on what I see, I'm like, you're not looking for a job. You tell me that you're looking for a job, but you're not looking for a job. I don't think you really want to work. And, and it's like that for this guy. It's like he has found a little niche of comfort with his ailment. And if this man was healed, boy, he's going to have to face some new realities. It's like, I can't lay around here all day. I'm going to have to make some changes. It's going to result in, for one, he's going to need a job. And you know, sometimes, just for us, it's easier to be an invalid emotionally, spiritually. You know, we can just enjoy the sympathy of others rather than, than grow up and to face the realities of looking in the mirror and what you've settled for. And this man had been there for 38 years to the point that he enjoyed his poor health. And Jesus looked at him and he knew it. Do you want to be healed? Like, I wonder what the inflection was. And Jesus, what, do, do you want to be healed? He was a man resigned to accepting his position. And Jesus, Jesus can't do much with people like that. But Jesus can do a lot with people who say, Lord, I want to be well. I want to participate in what you're doing. I want you to heal me. I want you to transform my thinking. 
I want you to bring emotional health. To, I want you to bring relational health. Jesus, I believe you can heal me. Jesus can do a lot with that. I want to grow through this, Lord. I want my character to be transformed by this, Lord. I want to have victory over this temptation. I want to have victory, Jesus, over this sin. I want to be healthy, Jesus. But that wasn't this man. And so Jesus didn't mess around with him. In fact, when I read what Jesus says next, it's like firm. It's like tough. It's like he is not messing around. And in my mind, it's like a little bit harsh. It's the same kind of dual side of Jesus that John has been showing us all along. Look what Jesus says in verse 8. Get up. Take your, up your bed and walk. And again, you have to wonder the inflection of the master here. Like, what did it sound like? Get up. Take your bed and walk. Jesus didn't say, take my hand and let me lift you up. Jesus didn't offer a helping hand in this situation. There's other spots where he did, but in this one, he did not. He said, get up. Take your bed and walk. Wow. Wow, like when you think about that, that's how you deal with someone who does not want to get well, right there. It's like you have to command them. You have to force them to make a decision. And it seems a little bit harsh, but Jesus is saying this, if you want to, if you want to get up, I will enable you to get up. He gave the command and now the command is the enablement. All the man has to do is stand and he'll be healed. You know, it's interesting, Paul said this, he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, Paul knew that his enablement to do all things came from the power of Jesus. And that's what this man is discovering. And so verse 9 tells us, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now again, like Jesus never tells us to do something that we can't do in his strength. His word is our enablement. His word is power. Now, I'll just tell you this. If Jesus tells you to do something, then, then do it. Do it by his strength. And, and the reality is for each of us is that if, if Jesus told you to do something and you didn't do it, if he told you to do something and you didn't do it, that's because you didn't want to do it, not because he didn't give you the power to do it. It's like Peter walking on the water. Remember that great story? Peter walking on the water? Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. All right, Peter, let's go, man. I can work with that kind of faith. Get out of the boat. And Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water, which we know doesn't happen. You can't do that. It's, it's a miracle. And Peter walked on that water until he began to take his eyes off of Jesus and he focused on the wind and the waves and then he began to sink. And he cried out to Jesus and that's when Jesus put out a hand. Let me help you up. That, that's the guy Jesus put out a hand to. Not the guy saying I can't. The one who stepped out of the boat and took a risk with Jesus. Church, Jesus is looking for faith. He doesn't say, just lay there and I'll pick you up. Just lay there and I'll pick you up. He says, get up and I will give you the power to do so. Focus your eye on Jesus like Peter did and say like Paul did, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And this is when the drama begins. Right here, because look, check out the end of verse 9. It says, now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. <laughs> Hello. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd 
into place. Listening to Jesus will get you in trouble with religious people. I don't want to be a religious person. I don't want you to be religious people. I don't want this church to be a religious church. We want to be people who walk with Jesus in relationship. That's not about religion. It's about relationship. Religion is man-made rules about how to approach God. And when you listen to Jesus, you will come into conflict with religion. And that's what happens for this man. Certainly following Jesus did not mean all of his problems were gone. He had a problem before. He was an invalid and then he listened to Jesus and he was healed. And now he had a new problem with religious people. They had a problem with him. He could walk for the first time in 38 years, but that didn't matter to the religious Jewish spiritual authorities. All they saw was a man carrying his mat. It's interesting. He's carrying, get this picture. He's carrying that which once carried him. That's a man set free. It's like the thing that he once laid upon, he now has in his hands and it's in his control and it's a tool that he can use. His life isn't resting on it. He's controlling it. And he carried his bed and, and he ran straight into the Jewish leaders who told him, you're breaking the Sabbath. And this is the start of the opposition against Jesus because it's, it's the start of the conflict between the letter of the law and the life of the Spirit. They're coming into contact for the first time in John's Gospel. Human tradition was clashing with divine revelation and it happened, it happened on the Sabbath, which was bad news as far as they were concerned. We know about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift from God to his people. It was a day that was supposed to be used in the way that God had designed. It was supposed to be a day of rest from your work. It, it was a day of rest, but it was a day when, when God's people were to recognize, look, I don't have to work seven days a week and live life in fear. God's my provider. He looks after me. He calls me to work. But at some point, ultimately, he's my rest. Ultimately, I trust him for my resources. I, I, can, take a, I can take some time off and rest and give the Lord an opportunity to speak to me because I trust him. And so the Sabbath's about is rest for the body and rest for the soul. It was meant to be a blessing. In fact, knowing Jesus, the New Testament teaches us this, that knowing Jesus is the fulfillment of Sabbath. That Jesus is rest. In fact, of the Ten Commandments, the breaking of the Sabbath is the only commandment not repeated in the New Testament. Nine out of ten are repeated in the New Testament, but the Sabbath law is not repeated in the New Testament because our rest is in a person, not a day, church. Our rest is in Jesus. And even though we work, we, we rest. We rest in Jesus every day. He's the source of our peace, the source of our hope, the source, the source of everything, Christ. We rest in him from our spiritual strivings and we know at the same time, boy, it's like good to have a spring break. It's good to have some time off. Now the religious leaders had done this. They had added all sorts of rules to what defined and what qualified as work, as, as rest and what qualified as work on the Sabbath. And of course, one of the traditions was that, that a man was not to carry his mat on the Sabbath. That was work. That was breaking Sabbath law. And so the question, what are you doing carrying that mat? The answer, the man who healed me told me, get up, take your bed, and walk. He's doing what Jesus told him to do. Who told you to do that? They asked him. He said, well, actually, I don't know who it was. Guy's gone. 
It's interesting. John, John tells us that Jesus had withdrawn, like specifically that there was a crowd in that place and that Jesus was not interested in that. Wasn't interested in the adulation of the crowd. He did what God called him to do in the situation and he got out. So we read in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now it's like interesting again. It's like, wow, Jesus, these are like, these are sharp words, man, that have meaning and ha are communicating a message. They, they meet again. Now they meet in the temple. They're not at the pools of Bethesda. They're at the temple, on the temple grounds. And Jesus tells him, no more sin. Don't sin. In fact, he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now that's, you know, it's interesting. First, Jesus tells them what to do. Get up, take your mat, and walk. That's what you're to do. Now here's what you're, then he tells them what you're not to do. Here's what you're not to do. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Now, now you just read that and it suggests, like it suggests that this man's infirmity was associated with his sin. That whatever was going on in him physically was rooted in a sin issue in his life. And, you know, you, you, you study this text and people speculate all over the place what that means. It doesn't really matter. It just should lead us to this question. Is there a connection? The question is this. Is there a connection between sin and sickness? Is there a connection between sin and disease? In church, the answer is yes. You know, every sickness and disease comes from the presence of sin, whether that's direct or indirect, because this world's broken. It, it may be direct because I participate in this and this and this, and so there's a consequence to sin, and it brings sickness and disease upon my life. Or it may be indirect because this world's broken and in need of a Savior, Jesus. The answer is yes. Now, I, I, don't, I don't believe that every sickness is due to the sin of the person who is sick. No way, man. But I do believe that every sickness is because of sin. I, I believe that, and the Word of God teaches us, there, there would be no sickness on earth, earth if it wasn't for sin. Let's go back to the garden. God said, he created, he said it's good. There was no sickness, there was no disease until Adam and Eve made a choice to participate in sin. And then there was a consequence. Death came, and with the presence of death came sickness and disease. But there are cases where a person's sickness is directly related to their sin, and this is one of these cases that we read about. Seems to be. But here's the cool thing. This man had victory with Jesus. He had healing from his sickness with Jesus, but he also had a warning. Don't be slipping back. No more sin. Don't you go back to that spot that caused you to get over here. Don't be like the dog that returns to its vomit. Go forward in the strength that I've given you. I mean, imagine laying paralyzed for 38 years by that pool. And the only thing that I th can think is worse is to be paralyzed in your soul. To be sick in your soul, paralyzed because of sin. The question is this. It's always the question from Jesus. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Christ wants to heal that. Whether for you it's emotional, spiritual, maybe it's moral. God wants to, God doesn't want to hear from you. I can't. He, he wants to say, 
Let's go and have you say, yeah, Jesus, I'm in. Do the work. I need you to do it. Look at verse 15. The man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This was the problem with Jesus right here. He was doing this stuff on the Sabbath. And, and this is the first problem that they had with Jesus. The first problem was the things that, they, that he did. They did not like what he was doing. In their minds, he was trampling on their sacred traditions. And nobody likes a man who tramples on tradition. He, and Jesus was ignoring their traditions. And when they questioned, man, in their minds, he put themselves, and he did, he put himself and the words of God above the traditions of men. We're going to see this continually in the Gospel of John. And so they said, it's sacrilege. He's breaking the traditions of men. Doesn't he know who we are? Doesn't he know our traditions? Doesn't he know what this means? Doesn't he respect? And so the first problem was the things that he did. So they persecuted him. That's what John says. They they didn't like what he did, so they persecuted him. The second problem was the things that he said. And for that, John says, they wanted to kill him. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. My father is working to, until now, and I am working. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus didn't say this. He didn't say, uh, God works on the Sabbath and so I follow his example and I'm working on the Sabbath. He said this, my father works right now, and so I am working. And in their eyes, that was a move from the crime of sacrilege, breaking tradition, to the crime, stepping it up, of blasphemy. He wasn't just speaking sacrilege, looking for a better word there, but he wasn't just speaking sacrilege with regards to the Sabbath. He was doing so with regards to God in their mind. And this was blasphemy. And you know, we read this and in our modern Western thinking, we go, big deal. He called God Father. We do that all the time. We do that all the time here at church, right? Like we refer to God as Father. In my own prayer life, I call God Father. So we think big deal, but we have to, we have to understand as they understood. They, they instantly changed their minds against him from that of a Sabbath breaker to that of a blasphemer when Jesus said and of God, my father. In their minds, such a suggestion was for him to assert equality with God. He's making a claim that he's God. When he spoke, they understood his words, words to mean that, that he claimed God as his father, church, in a unique sense. There's stuff going on here in the original language. He spoke of God as his father, not, not our father, not your father. He says, my father, my own father, like in this, this private, separate sense in in. This way that he's suggesting that we belong to one another. I belong to him and he belongs to me. We're harmonized with one another. When he said, my father, he, he's saying, I have the nature of the father. I am equal with God. I have his character, his aims, his purposes, his acts in mind when I work on the Sabbath. My father is working and I work also. See, Jesus was assuming the authority and the rights of deity by calling God his own father. 
And this is when the official persecution began. This is why they said, we have to kill this man. We're going to put him on the cross because he claims God is his father. He's claiming to be God. This is a great text. Now, I want to remind you what John says in his gospel. I'm going to just keep coming back through this series the whole time through. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us the purpose for which he is writing when he tells us his gospel. He says this, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Here's the reason why they're written. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus made himself equal with God because Jesus is God. And this is the theme of John's gospel. This is the reason why Jesus came, to reveal this and then to save humankind, to save men and women, to set us free from the things that cripple us. And to me, as I wrestle through this text, the question is this, is that I'm confronted with, that I think we're confronted with, church, is this. Do you have the will to be healed? Do you want to be well? Time to stop placing, placing blame on what someone else did. Time to stop placing blame on circumstance or situation or upbringing. Come on, you're the people of God. You have an identity. And it's found in heaven. Not in the circumstances of this earth. In him we're overcomers. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what Paul said. Church, you can overcome. You can overcome as you set your eyes on Jesus. Man, he will lead you to places you will walk on water like Peter. Maybe not physically, but figuratively. You will overcome. Look, where does God want to bring you victory? Is it over sin? Is it over temptation? Is it over some moral issue? Is it over some emotional issue? Over some mental thing? So over some sickness, is it, is it, what is it? Do you want to be well? Let's go, let's go. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Have you the will to be healed?